the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, I know for many of us, the conflict in Ukraine is very much on our minds right now. And if we've learned anything in the past few years, it's that information is powerful and misinformation is rife. So while we won't be covering the Russian invasion on this program, because quite frankly, it just wouldn't be appropriate, I would encourage you to be careful what you share on social media and to check and verify your sources before posting. Right, uh, coming up on this week's programme, how difficult is it to plant forensic evidence at a crime scene? If we'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science, or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. And we get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. All right, let's look back at what happened in the week in science. We're joined now by Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with tourism in the Antarctic, Shane. Yeah, tourism and research in the Antarctic, uh, which are affecting the snowmelt down there. And um, it's, it, I suppose it's an obvious one when you think of it. It's just that no one's ever measured this effect before. So what's happening is people are going to the Antarctic for work and pleasure. Fossil fuels are keeping them alive down there. They're also getting them there. But fossil fuels, um, they, they cause black carbon pollution, literally black carbon pollution in the snow. That's dark, so it absorbs more energy from the sun and it causes the snow to melt at a faster rate. Um, and that's not good because, as we know, snow melt in the Antarctic is a big problem as glaciers start to, to loosen and it, it contributes to... Uh, well, to the destruction of the habitat down there and to rising sea temperatures. A whopping 74,000 people visited Antarctic um, as tourists between 2019 and 2020. That's an incredible number. I would never have thought that number of people are visiting the Antarctic uh, every year. Um, Isn't it kind of hard to get to in a way? Well... I would have thought so, but I, I did a little bit digging after reading this story. And you can you can travel to South America and take ferries to Antarctica. And uh, you can, whether you land or not is a different question, but you can certainly go and see your penguins and walk on a bit of ice and get your photographs. Fantastic for, for Instagram, I'm sure. Um, but uh, but the, the scientists had to go and look at the effects of this and they sampled snow at 28 different sites across the continent, but they focus mainly on the tourist hotspots around the coast. And they found that the black carbon levels at the coast are four times higher than any other part of the the continent. And they're suggesting that we need to take action here, that even though it's only 74,000 people in a big continent, it is having an effect. And so they say, perhaps we should look at getting people to Antarctica uh, using alternative fuel sources and perhaps limit the amount of human activity that uh, that that is down there. There's no need for us to be going to Antarctica. Really, there isn't. No, and I suppose um, I, I travelled to the Galapagos, uh, ironically, to do a program on how travelling to the Gala- Galapagos was not a good idea. Um, uh, but but you know, it, it is interesting because you've got this relationship uh, with locals and uh, needing tourism for them to thrive, and then at the same time, you have wealthy um, nations saying you can't. 
you know, you, you can't earn money. You need to protect this place and stay uh, and stay poor or find ways to, to, to live that doesn't involve tourism, which is how they make most of, of their money in, in places like, for example, um, the Galapagos uh, or, the, or the Maldives. And so, uh, you know, there's an argument there. And then at the same time, you've got to look at the, the, the longer term habitat um, protection and so on. So it's it, it is um, it's an interesting conversation. But um, I yes, think but there are, of course, no natives in Antarctica. So. No, for sure. For sure. <laughs> but that is oh, a no, bigger uh, question, though. Yeah. You're right. Like, you know, it's, it's the, if, if the West were to stop traveling to those places, what would happen? And I think that that just underlines the need for just transitions so that you, you can't just stop people going immediately and kill off any industries that are there. But at the same time, mm. we have to recognize that the industry is harmful. Yeah. And, and I suppose if finding ways of creating perhaps, you know, maintenance funds for these islands to keep the world the way we want to keep it without having to go there is, is possibly one idea. And it's certainly um, something that's been floated for the Amazon. OK, our second story, um, Lara, is uh, about something I thought we didn't have to talk about, polio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Polio was officially eradicated from the continent of Africa in 2016. Um, Now, this is wild polio. There are still outbreaks of uh, vaccine-derived polio because it's a live attenuated virus in the vaccine, which means that it is alive, but it's weakened. Um, And in areas of very low immunization, this actually can break out and cause paralysis in people. But there has been no wild polio um, in Africa since 2016. Um, And very unfortunately, a three-year-old girl in Malawi Um, has just become paralyzed. Well, it actually happened in November 2021, but it was just announced a couple of days ago. And they sequenced the virus and they found that it is definitely the wild polio virus. And it came from Pakistan. There's only two countries in the world where polio is still endemic in its wild form, and that's Pakistan and Afghanistan. And this virus strain came from Pakistan and was last identified in 2019, which means that it's been circulating silently since then until it paralyzed this poor child in November 2021. Now, only about one in every 200 children who are infected become paralyzed, which means it's a very, very difficult virus to trace and track. Um, and because of COVID-19, the tracing and tracking of polio has been um, very poor over the last couple of years in Malawi. So this is really, really bad news. Um, and it means that, you know, the the, the um, Global Polio Eradication Initiative are going to have to move in, really try and track where it came from. And, and they have a huge amount of work on their hands now. Is I mean the polio vaccination program that that is underway in Ireland and has been for many decades. Is that a, a global thing? Does every country in the world, you know, when the child is born, get a, a polio vaccine? Or am I being really naive? No, no. The 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 global polio eradication initiative is one of the best vaccine initiatives that has ever existed on on earth it's second only to pretty much the smallpox and um, smallpox has been eradicated polio was virtually eradicated from this world and um, as i said there's only reservoirs in pakistan and afghanistan so it's not the case that every child gets their vaccine exactly the way it's done in ireland where it's done you know we get our vaccines two months four months six months etc but this group have tracked down and vaccinated as many children as is physically possible and um, so they have done an amazing job but with covid19 everything seems to have slipped and it just seems that there's these breakthrough cases now, which is really worrying. But it is a wonderful initiative and they have done brilliant work to try and eradicate polio. Uh, all right. Our third story, uh, Shane, has to do with um, a large fossil found in Scotland, the largest pterosaur uh, fossil ever found. Yeah, pterosaurs were, were flying lizards uh, famously. And 
they first came about in the Triassic period. Now, when, whenever, whenever I read these stories, I get so bamboozled by the names of all the eras. So a quick summary, Triassic was first, then the Jurassic, and then the Cretaceous. And the Cretaceous was the time of all the big dinosaurs like the T-Rex and the Triceratops, you know, uh, which is ironically called Jurassic World, which really bothers me. But um, anyway, <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> the flying lizards first uh, evolved, we think, in the Triassic period, and they were tiny. And then there's a big gap in the fossil records. And then we find the huge flying uh, pterodactyl-like things in the Cretaceous period. And they were as big as a fighter jet around, uh, with the wingspan of around 12 meters. So wow. what this discovery is, um, is the bit in the middle. They found a, a, a new species and uh, it had a wingspan of two and a half meters. And um, they dug it up. Well, they partly dug it up uh, off the Isle of Skye. Uh, and they were able to use their eyes to do the first level of inspection. And then um, a really complex use of x-rays called tomography in order to be able to look inside the stone and to, to see the preserved skeleton within. And they, they saw that it was a juvenile because its bones weren't fully fused. They were able to see that it has sharp upper and lower teeth like a Venus flytrap, which would have been perfect for catching fish. And so um, this is a, a new discovery. It gives us an awful lot of information about this uh, Jurassic period for flying creatures. Um, did, did they not crack open the rock then? Have they not done that yet? They've just sort of done an x-ray type thing. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, you know, they, they're probably being really cautious as to, you know, once you crack that egg, you can't you can't reseal it again. So um, they, they have plenty of techniques that allow them to look inside, perhaps far more sophisticated than the eye. What's it called then, Shane? Yeah, they've given it a, a Celtic name, which is fantastic. So it's like, we, we can kind of claim this one. So it's a Jarek Skiok. Um, so uh, <laughs> don't ask me what that means. I think it means dark uh, at the start, but uh, fantastic to see that there, there there is this Celtic connection to these dinosaurs. And of course, people who are traveling around Ireland may go to see the um, the pteropods uh, marks on Valencia Island, which are, are said to be one of the oldest in the world. We can see four-legged creatures their paw prints are preserved in the stone there if you're on Valencia on a rainy day. Yeah, um, it is our only real claim to fame when it comes. We, we've got not got anything like this um, pterosaur fossil. Um, as we've described only recently in the programme, Ireland just wasn't great for that sort of thing, uh, rock-wise. Uh, OK, our final story, Lara, is an unusual one. It's to do with what we see before we die. Yeah, so I suppose it's um, a question that has been plaguing philosophers and scientists for many years, this concept of your life flashing before your eyes during a near-death experience. Um, and it comes from reports of people who have had near-death experiences saying that either their life flashed before their eyes or they saw a bright light or, or all sorts of different things. And they have done research in rats, um, which shows that when a rat goes into cardiac arrest for the 30 seconds before and after it dies, um, it has very um, high functioning brain waves so they're called gamma brain waves and they're they're usually for carrying out high cognitive tasks and there's a very unusual case report that was just published and it was published in the frontiers of aging neuroscience by a team um, in Vancouver and what they found was they had an EEG. So an EEG is what you see in movies where people stick a lot of stickers on people's heads and they look at the electrical activity of their brain. And um, in general, it's for people who have epilepsy and other um, neurological issues. And an 87-year-old man arrived into a hospital having had a very bad fall and he had two large hematomas, which are essentially 
big bruises on his brain. And um, he had a CT scan. It showed that his brain was was severely damaged. So they actually had to put a borehole, a big hole into his skull and pull out a load of the blood. And then the poor man went to ICU and he was stable for two days, but he started having um, what they thought was seizures. So they put on this EEG, this this measure of his electrical brain activity. And while it was on, he suffered from a cardiac arrest, this this poor gentleman, and he died. Um, now, that's obviously very sad, but the fascinating thing is that the EEG stayed on for the entire experience um, and they were able to record his death. And it seems to be the first time this has ever happened. And what they found was for the 30 seconds before his heart stopped and the 30 seconds afterwards, he had these gamma brain waves, and, and a lot of the rest of his brain waves, the, the alpha, the beta, the delta, were all suppressed. And the fact is that gamma is associated with higher cognitive demanding tasks. So, for instance, concentrating, dreaming, remembering things. But that is where facts end. So the fact is he had these and, and, and the fact is they are associated with that. We do not know anything beyond that. This man's brain was very badly damaged. We have no idea how it was functioning. He was a very unwell man. So to draw conclusions that we have, you know, gathered proof that we have um, our life flashing before our eyes just before we die is, is completely bogus. But as a case report, if you take it away from the ridiculous headlines, it is actually quite fascinating, extremely sad for this man and his family, but fascinating to capture this. And it's something that hasn't been done before. So if there were more people willing to, to I suppose people, palliative patients, people who were near death would be willing to have their brainwaves recorded, you could potentially gather more information on this. I remember reporting um, maybe a couple of years back on neuroscientists that were able to sort of um, reverse engineer brainwave patterns to create um, sometimes images or sounds or at least identify what sort of things were in the brain. I know that um, that is very rudimentary, but uh, having recorded these, is it theoretically possible as we learn more about what these brainwaves normally fire for? Um, is it possible that we might be able to to look at this death and be able to somehow figure out what sort of things that person might have been thinking about before they passed? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I suppose it's the idea that we have, um, we record things now that in 20 years time we may be able to gain more information from the way, you know, DNA has cracked an awful lot of cases from 20, 30 years ago. I would suspect that these are too rudimentary. I would suspect that the EEG recordings in this particular instance probably wouldn't be useful, yeah. but that's not to say we couldn't in the future. All right, well, um, Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD, thanks very much for joining us. On the way, how to use science to solve a crime. Now, forensic techniques have improved immensely in the past three decades, providing lawmakers with better tools to secure a just conviction. But that's not to say it's easy, and a tiny single fibre from a glove or jacket can sometimes be the difference that sways a jury convicting or releasing a potential violent criminal. Professor Angela Gallup, CBE, is a forensic scientist and author of How to Solve a Crime, Stories from the Cutting Edge of Forensic. She joins me now. Uh, You're very welcome to the program, Angela. And I'm sure lots of people um, listening to this program will have an idea of what they think forensic science is. But um, I suppose this is a job that is all about um, attention to detail. Can you tell me what it's like arriving uh, at a scene uh, where a crime is committed, what what happens from the very beginning? What is the role of the forensic scientist as opposed to the one that we see on, on TV? Well, like everything else in forensic science, investigating a crime scene is all about teamwork. So you have different people with different sorts of jobs and we all get on with it and kind of work together. But the forensic scientist is there to support 
the senior investigator who will also be there from time to time and obviously also the crime scene investigators and so as I say we work together and it's our job to try and work out from the physical evidence in front of us um, what's likely to have happened there and then what sorts of things um, we ought to be collecting or ought to be collected from the scene and then making sure that they're collected in the most effective and appropriate way. And of course, we have a slightly different background from the CSIs because we are um, also obviously very involved in the subsequent laboratory work. And so we know what sort of samples we like, what we like samples of and how we like them to be collected. We're quite fussy about that. So it's quite handy if you're there at the crime scene. Uh, to be able to help with the process right from the beginning and extremely handy, um, obviously, to work out what's likely to have happened there because that will help direct the forensic investigation. I should say that um, from now on in the interview, we will be talking maybe a bit more specifically about cases and some violent details. So if you do have young kids with you, maybe now is the time to, to switch over just for a short while. So when a forensic scientist uh, arrives at a scene, how do you know what to pick up? Because, you know, having seen microscopic images of, of clothes and so on, it seems like the entire world around us is filled with all sorts of dust and fibres. If someone has been murdered at a scene, uh, for example, um, in the case of 19-year-old Stephen Lawrence, how do you know what you're supposed to be looking for and how do you sift the important for the unimportant? Well, I mean, that's that's um, part of the job, really. And you're quite right that at every scene, just depending on what the environment is, there's all kinds of traces that you could collect. But you obviously have to select those that you think are going to be most helpful. And you need, and in all science, really, you need a framework for your testing. And the framework in forensic science is very much what is likely to have happened there, what someone is like to have done, how they, if it's inside a building, how they got in, how they got out, all of that sort of thing. So you're identifying um, the things and the points at which they will have left bits of themselves behind. And you're also looking for the sorts of things they will have taken away with them from the scene and taking reference samples of them. So that that is the framework you use. And so, you know, in that way, um, it makes it, um, it, it doesn't make it a lifetime's work. It makes it a work of a few days, probably. So how much do we shed uh, of our of ourselves and of our clothes and of the the things we bring with us when we enter a building and get in, involved in in a violent attack uh, is there a huge amount of debris that we leave in in that sort of scenario inevitably we leave an enormous amount behind us it just depends what we've had to do if we've had to break in it's one thing if we were able to walk in it's quite another so it all it, it all depends on that and then what we do when we're in there but you're likely to leave for example, the tread pattern of your um, footwear, you're likely to leave fibres, tiny, invisible to the naked eye, fibre fragments from your clothing. Uh, you're likely to leave them around. You're likely to leave your DNA around, whether or not you're wearing a pair of gloves. If you're wearing a pair of gloves, there's more fibres you could leave behind. You might shed a few hairs while you're there. All sorts of things, all depending on the circumstances. So obviously you're, you're trying to connect the dots, see what happened and then find some evidence to support that in, in a court case. And obviously there's pressure from you, presumably from police to discover something that, that looks like a, a smoking gun. How often does that come about? Can you tell me about um, uh, one of your more high profile cases and, and how forensic science led to a conviction, please? 
Yes, well, with our high-profile cases we've been um, doing is uh, very much we came along years after the event and then had to you know do something different. If it was easy to solve, it would have been solved ages ago. Hmm. So we always have to do something slightly different. But to take um, one example, the case of Lynette White, who was brutally murdered with many many uh, stab cuts and and other knife injuries. At the time of the the crime was was first investigated, and that was in 1988, the original scientists realised that there was what appeared to be some what we call foreign blood at the scene. In other words, blood that could have come perhaps from the offender. And so that was a very good starting point for us. So we had to find some more of this. They'd used it all up in their testing over the years, trying to work out who it might have come from. So we had to be really imaginative. And one of the things we did there was to get the police to remove some of the woodwork from the premises, so skirting board and front door. And although the place had been painted twice over the intervening years, we were able to scrape away at the paint and reveal some of the blood that was there at the original time. Fortunately, the person who painted over it first hadn't prepared his surfaces or her surfaces properly, and it was still there. But we were able to reveal this and then get a full DNA profile from it, and then it was a question of finding out who that came from. So it's a question of being very imaginative often. It's also a question of not taking too much notice of what the first scientists found, but redoing the case that we've learned that that's very important. In Damalola Taylor, we found some um, blood that was missed on two items. And then that was, you know, really helpful in helping to solve the case. And it's no criticism of the original scientists. They're usually working under tremendous time pressure and in, with enormous amounts of things to look at. So obviously, in being human, people do miss things. And similarly, in another case in Rachel Nicole, it was always all about the scientist applying their technique wrongly. There was a flaw in it. And we realised that. And when we corrected that, then we started to get the sorts of results that they were looking for originally. And eventually were able to identify Robert Knapper and at the same time exonerate um, poor old Colin Stagg, who'd been um, suspected for years. But to take an example of... Um, of a case that, um, you know, a current case we did when it was fresh, as an example, when the crime scene investigation was really very important part of the whole thing. Um, somebody had broken into this shop, it happened to be a, a sex shop selling sexual objects, um, and brutally murdered again the proprietor. And there was lots of blood around at the scene, obviously. And But there were lots of footwear marks. Whoever had done it had obviously walked in some of um, um, some of the victim's blood and then walked around at the scene. So we could see all these marks. But we couldn't actually find, the you know, what sort of shoe it would be, what the make was or anything from our databases. Um, so at the same time, the police were looking at CCTV that focused on, on the street, not exactly the shop entrance, but the street. And they discovered someone who was wearing a purple fleece underneath a jacket. And we were very interested in purple fibres because we'd found some at the point of exit that the offender right. obviously got out through. So anyway, um, that was very important. But probably just as important was being able to work out what shoes he was wearing because the, the brand was visible on the uppers. So we were then able to, we knew what, um, if he was anything to do with it, we knew what the shoe was. And then simply by um, going, we discovered, the police discovered that they were only available on mail order. 
this size was a fairly large size, so only a few had been sold in that size. They were quite new on the market. And so it was a very quick question of a very quick um, matter of them then visiting all of the addresses of these people until they found someone who looked like the chap in the in the CCTV footage. And when they did that, they discovered he didn't have a purple fleece, but he had a leather jacket looking like the jacket, obviously, in the CCTV footage. And they found on that purple fibres on the jacket. They found blood on the jacket that matched the victim. And so it's that kind of combination of different sorts of skills that often are successful in these complicated cases. Can you talk to me about some of the scientific techniques you use to analyse a scene? Um, does fluid dynamics come into play? Because I know blood spatter patterns are, are are important in trying to understand how and with that, with, with what amount of force a victim is hit. Is, is that Has that been overplayed in TV or is that a really important thing to understand? It is extremely important. Blood patterns are the other side of the coin from DNA. DNA will tell you from whom blood or other body fluid could have come, the pattern will tell you how it arose, how it got there, the sort of uh, the nature of the attack. And so it is very important. And that will tell you in turn what you're likely to find on the clothing of the perpetrator. So um, patterns are very important, as are the chemical tests that are able to distinguish for us between, for example, blood stains and and and, um, and coffee stains and other things that you might the ketchup stains like whatever you might suspect could be conceivably a blood stain but maybe an old one but um so there there are the chemical tests as well and then of course there are um some of the techniques that particularly the police use they are very concerned obviously with fingerprints they've always specialized in fingerprints and so there's all the powdering and enhancement techniques that they use augmented by some techniques that we use in the laboratory for bringing up fingerprints that aren't necessarily visible or not very well visible to the naked eye um, so they use uh, sort of the, the other other kinds of techniques for that so there's lots of lots of sorts of things of course the whole scene has to be recorded very carefully so you can go back and look at what it looked like in its original state sometimes that's really important and particularly with cases that you're investigating that are many years old really really important to get an idea of what the crime scene looked like at the time so you can help to explain some of the findings that you make so lots of different things that you need at a a crime scene um it, it must be very gratifying at times when you when you put together the pieces of the puzzle and you solve a, a crime that has been unsolved for some time. And, and I imagine in particular the case of uh, Peter Dixon, his wife, Glenda. Um, would you maybe tell us what, what happened to, to Peter and Gwenda and uh, and how that crime was solved? Yes, I mean, that was probably, I mean, uh, if you can have a favourite case, if we're allowed to have favourite cases, that was probably my favourite case because it was really tough. First of all, we were coming along many years after the event um, I mean, this happened in 1989. Um, the, Gwenda and Peter Dixon were forced off the coastal path at gunpoint down onto the, the, the sort of undergrowth at the edge of the cliff on this wonderful part of the coastal path. And there they were shot at close range, each of them several times, and then covered their bodies covered with branches and so on. Um, and so we, we didn't get involved until about 2006, I think it was. And so several years later. Um, and what happened there was that we were asked to, I think the, the, there was a new senior investigator at David Powers, which was the force concerned, um, a very experienced, really insightful um, investigator from Merseyside. That was where his um, background was. And he came in. 
And he was had been looking through, because it was not only this case, there was another double murder, there was a sexual assault at uh, five young people at gunpoint and one or two other very violent cases in, in what is a very quiet, normally quiet, tranquil part of the country. And so he was determined to find, get to the bottom of this and find out if he could who was responsible. And it was at that point that we were brought in. So he had a name, he had someone in mind, but he just didn't have any decent sort of evidence it was too long mm. ago and so we had to start looking at um, all of that stuff and because the budget was fairly tight he said just focus on dna so we did that for several months we were just looking for anything to indicate the dna of the person who had manhandled these people obviously so there was a possibility and tied a rope around um, uh, peter dixon's hands so there was the possibility we might find some. But in the event, we didn't find any DNA. And I always remember the day when he rang up and said, Angela, you and your team, you're complete rubbish. You haven't found anything. And so we're going to take the case off you and give it to someone else. And there's nothing worse, obviously, that, mm. that you could say to a forensic scientist than that. So I went down to see him and said, no, you know, hang on a minute. You have kept us in a DNA straitjacket. We need to do a broader range of examinations and then maybe we'll find something. Because we had been learning by this time sometimes you need to look for something else to find the thing that you're really interested in anyway he said well okay you know he was he was very very good I have to say and he said okay you know you can do a little bit of fibers work which is what I wanted to do that's the clothing transfer of clothing fibers between the victims and the, the offender and in doing that and almost immediately we started to get an enormous number of links some links um one or two links with the very few items that had been seized from uh, John Cooper's property in the early days, you know, many years before, but quite a lot of links with lots of stuff in the hedgerow, which was his MO when he, he kept some of his offending gear. He kept lots of gloves in hedgerows and, and a balaclava and a fleece that he would then put on. But of course, he didn't take home. So he thought there would nobody would be able to connect him with them. Um, but anyway, we found lots of connections with um, with them. And we also managed to find fibre connections with the second double murder I mentioned and the, the sexual assault at gunpoint. So we managed to pull in all those cases. The senior investigator was completely right. A chap called Steve Wilkins, he was completely right in his suspicion that they were connected. And in doing that and in looking for these textile fibres and for more fibres, we managed to find this tiny spot of Peter Dixon's blood on a pair of shorts that were uh, that came from Cooper's house. Um, and then we found some other evidence too. So in the end, we had an enormous amount of evidence, but we never would have got there if we hadn't um, been able to start looking for textile fibres. And that, in a remarkably short space of time, opened the whole case up for us. And that's mm. one of the interesting things about forensics. It's a puzzle. It's a tricky puzzle, but it's um, it can be very satisfying. And of course, particularly then when you take a very violent man um, off the streets, because he had been in prison for a whole series of, of burglaries and an armed robbery, and he'd just come out. That's, I think, why Steve mm. was so worried about him. And when they arrested him, sure enough, in the boot of his car, he had the beginnings of another offending kit, some ropes and that sort of thing. So he was clearly going to do the same thing all over again. So it was a Gosh. really important case that. And, and, and the, all that evidence amounted to a, a life sentence for four murders, rape and a yeah. serious sexual assault. I mean, it's uh, yeah. uh, hugely relieving, I'd imagine, to, to know that that, that, that man is, is not yeah. um, is not walking free. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions. The first is, given how important 
it is to get evidence that really seals the, the case. Is it, I mean, all you need is a few fibers, which you would imagine if you've already questioned somebody would be very easy to get. How, how much can we trust scientific evidence presented at the courts? Because when, when, when people hear the word science, it feels very black and white. You know, um, obviously DNA is one thing, but, um, but forensic evidence of fibers and so on, are juries very convinced by a, a scientific expert? And should we be so convinced? Is, is the, the, the system not open to abuse? The system is. There are an enormous number of checks and balances in it. I think in terms of police planting things, I think that wherever we suspect anything, and it's usually very, very rare, and it's usually because there's far too much of something. Because Mm. you can't see the stuff we look for, we are very accustomed to finding not much, you know, little bits and pieces of things. And I think that if you were trying to plant something, you you would be tempted to overdo it. So you could, you know, actually see the products of what you've been doing, whereas actually... You know, um, that just rings the alarm bells for us. But it is very rare, I think. But forensic science isn't black and white. And it is very dangerous in the sense that, you know, if you don't do enough of it, if you don't look at the right things, you might be misled by it because you only find um, what you look for. You only find it on the things you look at. So you can already see that by condensing the effort, the forensic evidence in a case, you you could end up with a completely um, wrong picture of something. And I think that concerns us very much um, because that is one effect that police budgets, ha- um, pressures on police budgets, like um, pressures on other public services. But but it, it, it is the case that the, the police like to do you know, as little as possible, but yeah. just to keep the to get what they need. Yeah, to get what they need. And we all understand that, but there are dangers with forensic science. And there are also dangers, I think, not because the police are, um, are not trustworthy themselves. I know the horrific stories in the press and obviously the stuff's got to be done. It's got to be taken very seriously. But the vast majority of police officers I've worked with seem to be very hardworking, very determined to get to the bottom of it. They may have their hunches. We never take any notice of those. Um, but whatever whatever the situation, they mostly uh, seem to be you know, behaving really, really well and trying really hard. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it, it is easy for forensic science to be misinterpreted and misapplied. And I think we have to be very alive to that because as you're kind of implying, it can create miscarriages. It, it can do just as much as help to solve them. And finally, what about um, the amount of information there is now on forensic science and how it is um, undertaken? It, it, I mean, is it not possible that people who want to commit crimes can now sort of decipher what forensic teams are doing and 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 really have a quite a a good handle on how to mislead forensic teams or or is it a lot more difficult than that than that science it is a lot more difficult <laughs> than that sound i'm glad to say i don't want to be complacent about it in any way i mean we have to be all the time trying to up our own game and and you know make sure that we are sort of better than we were before and so on but i think and I, and I have been incredibly careful um, not to make this a, a murderer's manual, this book. You know, it is not how to get away with crime it, in any sense of the word. And there are bits that I would have said that I haven't said. 
um, just to try and make that a bit more, you know, a bit more the case. Mm. Um, so I think I think it's it's just so much more subtle and so much more of a team effort. It is so much, um, you know, it's so much dependent on context and expectations over the years and so on that I think, you know, when something is awry, then it tends to stick out a bit. Um, it's, I mean, I think it's gratifying. It's gratifying, or at least reassuring, that a forensic scientist still, um, after a career in 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 this over many decades, still has that sense that the truth will out. Professor Angela Gallup, forensic scientist and author of How to Solve a Crime: Stories from the Cutting Edge of Forensics. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It's such a weird thing to be like looking for these clues of like like being in a place where something horrible has happened and like just combing through it going hmm, is this paperclip something i just find it such a strange job for indic scientists uh, but fascinating interview aiden mckelvey our producer joins me now to go through your comments from last week um didn't get too gory I, this it's a weird thing isn't there with, with um with men and macabre stuff i don't know why i'm drawn to to it but like I, I like a lot of visceral horror no like not it doesn't need to be too you know I don't like torture porn or anything but there's something about um the gritty reality of our mortality that sort of men are drawn to aren't they what what is that about I don't know John don't don't uh don't lump all men your, together <laughs> your massive generalization no, actually just genuinely I, I I find myself totally turned off by uh gory horror i just kind of find it boring like yeah. i even like i love i love a lot of quentin tarantino movies but sometimes like something happens and i'm like ah no need for that, that. that yeah no like when they, just didn't add anything when they killed hitler at the end uh, i thought you know oh great and i was like oh, oh, oh okay okay God, okay he's dead jesus you know <laughs> yeah. it was really it was really um unpleasant yeah no i, I don't believe but but i guess I wanted to know the details of these of these murders, and I, these are real life murders. But um, I think people are really fascinated by violence in a way. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. No, definitely and we're drawn, and, and particularly men are drawn to, to to stories that involve violence. What's weird is with my children, who are now seven and ten, you know, violence is such an important part of the narrative for them, and it really does scare me. I, I would say maybe. I would like to say it's it's more, you know, jeopardy, but it's actually probably more, you know, is there fighting? Is there peril? If that isn't in a story, um, they're not very sated by it, typically. They, they they are sometimes, but it actually does. It makes me think I've probably done a lot wrong in the stories <laughs> that I've told them and the things I've, I've built up for them. But like, you know, certainly stories that they enjoy are stories where people get hurt. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people like that. Like, uh, it's, I don't. I think mm. you can you can try and fob this one off to the nature thing. I don't know if it is nature or nurture, but any like so all those superhero movies, like it's it's relatively yeah. um, inoffensive violence. But you have like 10, 15 minute fight scenes, um, and personally, I'm like, this is just a lot of boring, flashy CGI going on. Just get to the next plot point. But yeah. there are loads of people, obviously, who love that. Yeah, I don't like, I don't know what it is. It's not that I like big, long fight scenes. And it's not that I, I particularly enjoy seeing graphic details. It's not that. But I think it is peril. I think, you know, from a very early age, peril was, you know, something exciting to me. And, you know, good guys being in trouble is such an old, you know, um, it's such an old trope of storytelling. Um, it, I don't know. I've done, I think I've done something wrong. And I, 
I didn't realize until I think it was too late with my children. But obviously, I talk about all of these things. My elder son is fascinated by war. And I talk about the horrors of war and why it's awful and so on while we talk about the history. But it is, I mean, some of the stuff that happened during World War II is just fascinating and also horrific. Anyway, we've spent a lot of time on this, unnecessarily. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so last week we uh, spoke to Professor Alice Roberts, um, who is an anatomist and author, and she talked about um, these burials in uh, in the UK, some really interesting ones, the Amesbury Archer, this archer that was buried with some amazing... Um, artifacts and so on and there was some other um, burials in Ireland and other places and I foolishly described Ireland and England as the British Isles because I thought geographically duh, duh, duh. I know, this didn't go well on Twitter <laughs> and, and in texts um, so uh, I thought I thought it was a geographical thing but um, now that people brought it up in such <laughs> with such ferocity, I remember that actually, yes, no, British Isles doesn't actually, it doesn't work either geographically or obviously culturally or socially. Um, and I got into trouble for that. Please refrain from referring to ERA as being part of the British Isles as someone. This is a term coined from a colonist's colonist, a colonist perspective and Irish broadcasters 100 years since liberation should not continue to use it. Um, fair enough. Um, Joe Usher says, did Jonathan just use the term British Isles? Fascinating interview all the same. So I, I am sorry. I am sorry. I, I did. I, it was just it came into my I couldn't think of. I should have just said Ireland and the uh, and Great Britain. But anyway, sometimes um, you just do that, right? There might be a reprieve in this for you, Jonathan, because uh, believe it or not, I was uh, just coincidentally a few weeks back involved in a discussion about this so i had actually i had actually looked into it because i was i thought like you was like uh i don't have to like it but i think that is the geographical term um so i did some snooping around do you want to find out what i what yes, I found please. Out from yes, my research? Please. yes so uh it is a used geographical term notwithstanding there is obviously there is like it's there's no tainted. denying it's dirty yeah there's no denying the colonial background of that geographical term and you know the question of who made it or who, who decided that was the yeah. term is all very relevant of course um it used to be used a bit more than it was obviously before irish independence for obvious reasons mm. um but there are a couple of interesting things about it the irish government and the british government in any of the documents that they signed together say um the good friday agreement or whatever the term they use uh, which is interestingly vague is just these islands so they've huh. kind of steered clear of it but it actually has apparently got its origins in ancient greece believe it or not what? as there was a term to refer to the two islands ireland and britain as the protantic islands and um, my ancient greek isn't fantastic but i believe that is a similar term uh it, it basically translates more or less as uh, the British Isles, ah. you know, re referring to the larger island in a way that I guess is it similarly happens when we talk about something like the Indian subcontinent. Geographically, the bigger country is the country that gives the area its name. But I'm sure if you're whatever, if you're Bangladeshi or if you're Sri Lankan, you might not be particularly happy with that yeah. term. No, no. Uh, and neither am I particularly happy with the term British Isles. But uh, I think I think that it, it seems like you might have been correct. And, you know, if you're going to get yourself involved in uh, Twitter spats, John, which I can see you're, you're gunning to do every time I look at your Twitter, you need to stand your ground. Well, I, look, look, I, 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 I think I think, you know, from a geopolitical point of view, 
I think, look, the the victors get to um, write history, right? And, um, True. you know, defining ourselves by our relation to them. I get it. I get it. I actually just don't like it either. Um, but you reminded me of, of a, a quick anecdote, if you'll allow me. Um, the Romans came to to Ireland. Um, they, they were obviously they um, conquered Britain in a way, and then they went across and they sent scouts across to Ireland to see what's it like. Is it worth conquering? And uh, the scouts came back. This is very apocryphal, but apparently, um, Ireland is got its name Hibernia from the um, from the Romans, and it meant like. Just it's it's too cold there. The land of eternal winter is what Hibernia means, <laughs> and and basically the scouts said, "Don't bother, it's freezing," and so that's why we weren't conquered by the Romans, um, and that's why you hear Hiberno English that comes from the the the, um, the land of eternal winter, which was Ireland uh, as the Romans described it. Yeah, um, and in a week like we've had this week, uh, you can see why they'd be like, "Don't bother." Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Um, Jeremy Carney says, "Are we not calling it the East Atlantic Archipelago or something along those lines now?" Well, that would be both ridiculous and also, um, I suppose, relatively agreeable to Irish people at least. Um, but I don't think it's going to stick to you. Yeah, I mean, aren't there? Yeah, there are lots of archipelagos in the East Atlantic. It's not quite vague. But this is our East Atlantic Archipelago, Aiden. Um, <laughs> we could we could continue like this, but if you're still with us. I have to say, that's off. Um, that's it from us on this week's podcast. Thanks to uh, producer Aidan McKelvey, Steve Daunt, Simon Keane and Jojo Godozo, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.